Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Let's get into Galatians. We'll actually wrap up Galatians next week. We'll end Galatians, and that'll be my final Sunday before sabbatical. And I just read the passage for next week. I read it this week again, and I'm what sovereign timing of God to be able to, um, to orchestrate all that. We didn't plan that, but God's faithful that way. So uh, today we're in Galatians chapter 5. And I would say that uh, this is probably one of the most important messages that I could speak right now. If I, if I had a chance to just speak to the body of Christ, to the, those who call themselves and self-identify as followers of Jesus and, and would call themselves Christians, uh, in our time, in 21st century America, this is the message that I would give. Uh, this, I think this is the most important message that we could hear at this moment in time. And, uh, and I'll qualify that by saying it's not a flashy message. It's not something that's brand new and, uh, and revolutionary in the sense, well, that changes everything. It's just the gospel as it purely is. And it's a gospel that, that when, when understood and when lived out actually produces changed lives. And I believe that this is what our world is longing for and what the church is called to and what would most glorify Jesus. And so uh, I hope you can hear this. I pray, I've been praying that God would just give us ears to hear him this morning, that he would give me the words to speak his heart and his, um, his truth over us, that we would together commit to our part. We can't fix the whole world. We just can be responsible for what we do and how we carry Jesus' name in our time. And um, my prayer is that we would carry Jesus' name in a way that is faithful to who he is. So... Um, in keeping with our Christmas in July theme, we're going to be in Christmas three times today. Brent took us through one. Um, I'm going to take us through two more. Uh, the first one is uh, this Calvin and Hobbes uh, cartoon strip, which is Christmas-inspired, Christmas-themed. Begin with this. So this is Calvin and Hobbes. You got... Uh, does everybody know Calvin and Hobbes? This is, this is why the Sunday paper used to exist. Right? It's the, this is the main value. It's Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, so Calvin and Hobbes are going sledding, and Calvin says, uh, here we are at the top of Dismemberment Gorge. Ready to go down? Hobbes says, how about if I steer this time? Calvin says, ah, oh, get on you, big sissy. Now here's where it gets good. Calvin says, I've been good all day so far. Hobbes says, Christmas is getting near, huh? Calvin says, you got it. But I've been wondering, though, is it truly being good if the only reason I behave well is so I can get more loot at Christmas? I mean, really, all I'm doing is saying that I can be bribed. Is that good enough? Or do I have to be good in my heart and spirit? In other words, do I really have to be good or do I just have to act good? Hobbes says, I suppose in your case, Santa will have to take what he, whatever he can get. Calvin says, okay, so exactly how good do you think I have to act? Really good or just pretty good? That is an amazing, that is an amazing summary uh, of one of the two contrasting approaches to the gospel that we've seen in Galatians. I remember um, Paul is writing to the Galatian Christians. They're a group of young Christians. They've been only uh, followers of Jesus for a short period of time. But in the short period of time after they responded to the gospel as Paul preached it to them, other uh, teachers came in and began to infiltrate their community and began to teach a different gospel. Others have come in and left them spiritually confused and, uh, and have robbed them of their joy in Christ by adding things to the gospel that they have to perform in order to both secure and to hold on to their salvation. 
Paul spent most of the letter making his case that the true gospel of Jesus is through faith, by grace, and of the Spirit. We're going to come back to that again, but I want you to hear that. The true gospel is through faith. In other words, it's received as as an act of faith. It's by grace. In other words, it's given as a free gift from God. It's undeserved, ill-deserved, actually. And it's of the Spirit meaning it's empowered by God's indwelling spirit. Paul, basically, everything in Galatians up until now has been Paul arguing with them for that. He's been making his case for that. Which means that they are now free from debt, the debt of sin, and from the power of sin. They're no longer slaves to sin. He's he's used that kind of language. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You've been set free through this gospel of an indwelling spirit by faith, through grace. They're also free from having to then, therefore, earn and secure their standing with God through law-keeping. Now, as Paul's bringing the letter to a close, he does so by contrasting the outward characteristics that will be evident depending on which gospel they, and I would argue, we choose. Okay? So let me just say that again. Paul's bringing the letter to a close. He's, He's been building this case all along, and now he comes and says, okay, these two gospels, the gospel that I presented to you that you received... And the gospel that these others are confusing you with, they actually are two roads that go two different directions. And when you see them played out, they may sound pretty similar, but when you see them played out, they look very differently in people's lives. How do you know which gospel you're following? And this is a real question. How do we know which gospel we're following? How do we know which gospel others are following? Well, you look at how it plays out in their lives. This first approach to the gospel that we see depicted here in the cartoon, it's one that, it's that of the false teachers in Galatia. We're going to call it the non-gospel of the law. We're calling it the non-gospel, not just two gospels, because the word gospel actually means what? Good news, right? And this one that they've brought in, the way it's playing out in their church, it's not good news. Paul's actually said that. He actually said to him at the very beginning, that's how he opened the letter, he said, there is no other good news. As soon as you add to it or distort it or twist it, it's no longer good news. So this non-gospel law, what what is it? Well, essentially, here's here's a couple of summary points. Basically, it leverages our self-interest and, this is really important, our self-reliance to get us to do the right thing. Self-interest meaning this is what I do to avoid pain. And self-reliance mean I can do this myself. So law says, basically, here are the right things to do. Do them, do these right things, and you won't get punished. It's a checklist. Here's, here's the way people who are, are good people should live. Do these things. Do them so you don't get punished. Do them so you do earn God's favor. And here's the thing. Prior to Jesus, this was the only option for mankind. And it was better than the alternative, which was absolute lawlessness. How how was it better? Well, it was better than nothing because it revealed our fallenness and it restrained human sinfulness. In other words, have you ever had this experience where you wanted to do something that you knew was the right thing, but you found yourself not doing it? And it became a cycle. Maybe you're in this right now where you experience there's something that you wish you could change about yourself and you keep trying. You keep promising yourself you're going to do better. Maybe even promise God you're going to do better. But you keep finding yourself doing that thing over and over. That, that's the human condition before, before our redemption. That's our fallenness. But by, by giving us a law saying this is what you should do, well, it exposes the fact that we can't do it. And so the law actually was a good thing in that it revealed our fallenness, and it also restrained human sinfulness. Even though it did it by leveraging our selfishness, at least it put some parameters on the violence that we might do to one another. And so going back to to Genesis, for example, before, before the fall, or I mean before the fall, before redemption, before Jesus, there's this little line, I think it's in Genesis 9, where God surveys humankind. However many centuries humankind had existed at that point, he surveyed humankind, and this was when there, there was no redemption, there was no restrictions on, on people, and he said, says, 
then God, God was grieved that he had made mankind because the inclination of the human heart was always evil all the time continually. Okay. The law shows us the condition of the human heart, but also by saying, don't do this or you'll get punished, it keeps us from maybe stepping out and doing it. So, so that was the value. The problem is this. Simply knowing and attempting to obey the law leaves the human heart unchanged. And the, human, the unredeemed human heart will always revert back to its true nature. So I can know the right thing to do, and I can do it once, maybe twice, but given the right circumstances, the human heart is always going to revert back to its true nature. Maybe it will be when you think no one's watching. Maybe when no one's watching, you become a different person. Maybe it will be when, uh, when, when you get squeezed and what's actually inside you is what comes out. We use, that, we use that metaphor a lot. Like, what comes out of you when you get squeezed? Because the reality is, like, if I have the time to choose a very intentional response to something, I can always choose the right thing in the moment, if given the opportunity. But sometimes I don't have the time to respond because I react so quickly. And what comes out of the reaction shows what's really inside, right? That's the problem with the law is it can't change what's actually inside. It can't change the human heart, which is essentially a factory. And apart from God, it's a sin factory. <laughs> perhaps when no one's looking, perhaps when we get squeezed. So that's the non-gospel. It can be temporarily efficient, but it's not ultimately effective. We've used that language throughout this series, that there's a difference between the gospel that's efficient, the non-gospel, that just says, this is what to do, now go do it, and a gospel that's effective that actually changes people from the inside out. So what is, the, what is then the gospel? Sorry, my computer just locked up here. true gospel of Jesus. Here's the true gospel. This is the one that Paul taught to them. It's one that we're going to be looking at today. By faith in Christ, you are freely given God's favor, and the threat of judgment is removed. Your standing before God is absolutely not conditional on what you have done, what you are doing, or will do, because God is not evaluating you on your life, but on Jesus's life. The true gospel is therefore through faith, it's received in faith that, that that could actually be true. It's by grace, it's undeserved, and it's of the Spirit, meaning there's something beyond the, 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 the supernatural change when God puts his Spirit inside of us. This gospel is actually effective in transforming people from the very core of their being. Because when we receive God's forgiveness and grace by faith, he also gives us a new spirit, his Spirit, which changes our heart and our very nature. New hearts and new natures begin to produce real goodness, what Paul calls in this passage the fruit of the Spirit. I don't know if you caught my title for this, pat, for this message. I didn't, I didn't highlight it, but it was, it was good news. We can, we can bear good fruit that is real, or good and real fruit. Those are the two words. This is very important, good and real as we resume Paul's letter, he's now making a contrast between how these two gospels get played out in people's lives. So that's the setup. Paul's talking about these two, these two directions, the one that's being presented by the false teachers, the one that he's presenting, and, and here's how they play out in life. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. I highlighted a few words for you here. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Just pay attention to those two words that are highlighted there, walk and led. We're going to circle back to those at the end of our time this morning. But walk and led. I want you to think about the, 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 what, what's the, the, the tone of those words. So I want to make an important clarification here. Paul's contrasting two things. What are they in this passage? There's repeated words here. Flesh and spirit. 
Okay? Throughout this passage, he's going to use the word flesh five times. He's going to use spirit seven times. I want to make an important clarification because on, there's, there's this kind of a complicated passage, and you've got to kind of be able to sort it out and say, okay, what's Paul really talking about? Oftentimes when people think about flesh versus spirit, they think about the, the material world versus the non-material world. And so people hear flesh and spirit, and they hear this contrast Paul's making, and they think that what he's saying is spirit good, body bad. And that's not what he's saying. That's actually a heresy that developed in the latter part of the first century called Gnosticism. It came out of the, the Greek world and Plato's the Platonic thinking. And it's continued to have reverberations throughout the last 2,000 years. But this idea that the spirit is good and the body is bad is it's actually a heretical thought. The reality is God made our bodies. They're, they're fallen, but when God redeems us, he's redeeming all of us. We will, we will have new bodies in eternity. And so what can happen is if people think that the body's bad, that can play out two different ways. If, if we stick with this idea that Paul's talking about flesh and spirit, that flesh means your body, that he's contrasting those two things. Well, people who think flesh is bad they do, they do one of two things. Either they, they ascribe to a theory called asceticism, where they try and punish their body to prove they're not enslaved to it, to try and set their spirits free. And so literally, you, you'll see like the people that, that beat themselves with whips. You, maybe, hopefully you haven't experienced that. Maybe you've seen it in movies. It has happened throughout church history. But people punish their body to try and set their spirits free. Or they deny their body through uh, fasting and all kinds of things like that, right? The other thing people do is the opposite side where they say, well, if my spirit's all that matters and my body doesn't, I can do whatever I want with it. And then they just go into licentiousness and just wild living where they can do anything they want and all kinds of promiscuity that, that emerges from that. Okay? I say that to say that this is not what Paul's saying. When he's talking about flesh versus spirit, he's drawing a different contrast. And T. Wright would, would phrase it this way. He said, it is rather a matter of where your true identity lies. Where, where are your deepest motivation, or where your deepest motivation comes from, and where the power that rules your life is really found. So let's compare the two. It looks like this. Flesh versus spirit. Flesh would then be, it's not, again, it's not body versus spirit, or material versus immaterial. Flesh is actually talking about our in, independent, unaided human effort. So it's self-dependent, it's self-reliance. The opposite is spirit, where it's acted upon and empowered by God's indwelling spirit. God-dependence, God-reliance. Okay? It has to do with, with, with where these things come from and how we're, how we're approaching them. So to be led by the flesh is to run your own life. So just to, to, to bring this down to, to practicality. To be led by the flesh is to run your own life without depending on God even for good works, okay? Trying to do the right thing by trying to prove to God that, you're, that you've earned his favor or that you, des you deserve the favor that you are, he's already given you. When it comes out of self-reliance, that's being led by the flesh. While being led by the spirit is to be attentive to, yielded to, empowered by the indwelling spirit of God. It's this place of surrender and trust and dependence upon God, knowing, God, I can't even do the right things apart from you doing them through me. Okay, that spirit, that's what he's talking about. Even, even doing good things. And remember, these false teachers that are coming into Galatia, they're not teaching them things that are inherently evil. They're teaching them things that are self-dependent. Paul goes on to describe the things that will be characterized, the things that will characterize those led by the flesh and those led by the spirit. So we're gonna have two paragraphs here. He's going to say, okay, so if you don't understand what I'm saying, let me show you how to look for it. If you follow this non-gospel, or if you follow the true gospel, how does it actually play out? What does it look like in somebody's life? Maybe you can use these to measure your own life and ask, which gospel am I living out of? Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh, this gospel, they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, 
envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. <laughs> that is not, so he just acknowledged this is not a comprehensive list. He kind of just said, I could go on. But that's 15. That's probably a pretty good starting place. Things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, Paul offers a sample list here that's not comprehensive of the characteristics of people who try to do life and try to live out the gospel even from their flesh. Again, unaided by God, self-dependent, self-reliant, even for their goodness. And actually, Paul says, when you get right down to it, it actually isn't very good, is it? He said, if you try to live independent of God, if you try and earn God's favor, if you try and do this from a place of self-dependence, self-reliance, it actually won't even look very good. It'll look like these things. I find it interesting that 15, so that list has 15 characteristics that he listed and said, you know, I, I could keep going. But of the 15 he listed, there's some that are kind of the usual suspects. If I was to ask you, uh, could you list some vices for me of some, some things that people shouldn't do if they want to be good people? Some of these things would be automatic. They would show up. And we'd probably list things, and especially maybe in a more you know, religious environment, we'd list things like sexual immorality and drunkenness and orgies and all those kinds of things. We'd, we would list those things. Eight of the 15, more than half of the things that Paul lists here are, are not those type of behaviors. They're the things that, that break down relationships between people. He lists attitudes of the heart that play out in relationships. Again, listen to those. Dissensions, divisions, envy, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Those are non-loving ways of relating to others. And the question is, why? why? Why are those things the things that characterize somebody that's living independent of God's indwelling spirit? It's because the natural state of unredeemed humanity is that. That's what will come out when we get squeezed if we're not being renewed in God's image by his power. If we're not being renewed in his image by his power. When these things characterize a community, he, Paul says, watch out. This is what from last week's passage that Pastor Janet took us through. He said, when those things characterize your life, watch out that you don't bite and devour one another. The biting one another we experience when we have conflict with one another in, in ways that are not righteous. It's not talking about always agreeing. It's talking about how we go about it. But when we bite one another, he says, be careful lest you become devoured. Devoured means you are gone. That this community of people who are supposed to be representing Jesus to their, within their culture, within their, within their city, within their neighborhoods, you'll cease to exist if you live that way. What about the characteristics of those led by the Spirit? So he gives, he gives that list. Then he gives an alternative list. He says, well, what about the other way of living? What might that look like? And these are going to be very familiar to you. They're the fruit of the Spirit, right? I want you to hear the words and actually think about what each of them mean. Don't just, don't just let it become the, the, you know, yeah, love, joy, peace, patience. I know, I know, I know. Think about these words. What would a, a people who were characterized by these things, how amazing would that be to stand out in their culture? Remember, we looked at this back a little while ago. We looked at the church in Antioch. This was the church that sent Paul on this mission trip to Galatia. And it was in Antioch where the people were first called Christians. And it was because the, the surrounding community didn't have a label for what was going on with this group of people who lived so differently. And they looked at them and they said, well, they're, they're little Jesuses. This is the type of things that emerge when people are little Jesuses. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
against such things. And again, there's kind of a hint there that there could be more you could add to this list. Against things like that, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. I want you to hear that tense. That's past tense. If you belong to Christ, if his spirit is living inside of you, you've died to that other way of living. It's no longer an option for you. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As Paul turns to contrasting these two lists of characteristics, he changes the wording. In the one, he says, these are the works of the flesh. And then he says, this is the fruit of the spirit. What's the difference? Well, fruit is simply produced by the nature of the tree, right? What, what does an apple tree produce? Apples, yeah. What does a peach tree produce? Peaches. What do thistles produce? Do you ever find peaches on a nice thistle? Do you ever find bananas on a cactus? No. Trees produce according to their nature. Those who've received a new birth by the Spirit have been given a new nature. That's why Paul is so insistent that these Galatian Christians continue in the gospel that they received. If they continue on by the Spirit, they will produce good fruit and it will be real. It won't just be peaches shoved onto a cactus. Paul says, this reality was already established when you gave your life to Jesus. You put to death your independent way of living, even your attempts at self-reliant goodness. N.T. Wright illustrates Paul's contrasting paths or of works of the flesh versus fruit of the spirit by comparing two kinds of trees. Look at this next image. He says, the works of the flesh, they're like a decorated Christmas tree, while the fruit of the spirit is like a fruit-bearing organic tree. So let's unpack that a little bit. What's, what's a Christmas tree like? I mean, they, they look good, right? Like if you walk into a room and you see a Christmas tree, they're, they're, by their very nature, they're supposed to be pretty. Somebody has gone to a lot of effort to make a Christmas tree look pretty, haven't they? At its core, what is it? It's dead or it's plastic. <laughs> it's, it's either, it's, it's one of two things. 98.4% of all Christmas trees because there are people who buy the potted ones and they're still alive. That's an outlier. 98.4% of all Christmas trees are either plastic or dead. Now, I just made up that statistic, okay? <laughs> That's okay. Because 97% of all statistics are made up. So, <laughs> see what I did. But it's true, right? They're plastic or they're fake. And, and, and that means the Christmas tree, they didn't naturally produce those ornaments in and of themselves. Someone tied them on. Someone hung them there. And, and, and if you take it off at the end of the season and you put it away, and then you get it back out the next season, it doesn't spontaneously reproduce all of those ornaments. You have to hang them on there again. In fact, my daughter and I, Paige and I, one of our you know, our tradition of our family is the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, that's the day that we decorate the Christmas tree and decorate the house for Christmas and we get Chinese food and that's all part of the tradition, right? And, and um, Paige and I have this ordeal that we hate, which is you have to take the three parts of the tree out of the box and you have to fluff them and make them look like a tree again. It's actually a lot of work to make it look like it's a tree. And it really doesn't look like a tree still, but then you hide it with lights and tinsel and ornaments. Here's what Paul's saying. If you're trying to produce goodness in and of yourself in order to earn God's favor or keep God's favor, and, and you're not reliant on him to do it, but you're trying to produce that yourselves, it's, it's like uh, ornaments tied to a Christmas tree. It's not real. And when he gives that list, he says, not only is it not real, but when you look at it and you inspect it a little more closely, you find out that that dead plastic tree is actually producing something. It's just not good. It's that list he gave us. 
dissensions, divisiveness, the whole 15 list. On closer inspection, the things that that tree naturally produces are not that pretty. Meanwhile, a living fruit tree, it may not look as beautiful on first glance. It may not be as impressive on first glance. Like, I mean, Christmas trees, like, I mean, they stand out, right? But when you see just a bunch of fruit trees, they don't automatically have the same sort of impressiveness. But given proper care, given nourishment, they will produce real fruit season after season, year after year. All this brings us to Paul's conclusion, which we then do. And before I move on to that, let me just say this. Why do I think this message is so important? I think in the current world in which we live, and I speak to to 21st century America specifically, I think there's a lot of things that that get labeled, self-identified as this is what Christians do. This is who Christians are. And, and not all of it is authentic. Some of it's like tying ornaments onto a tree that's dead. And how do, we, how do we know which it is? Well, you look at the characteristics that come with it. And if we go back to that list and we, and we see things that people say, well, well I'm a Christian and this is, this is how I'm living, but then what's coming out of them doesn't actually carry Jesus' image. It doesn't look like the Jesus that we meet here. Well, maybe it's not coming from the true gospel. And we can't, it's not our job to, to judge the rest of the Christian world. It's our job to be authentic ourselves, to look inside and say, God, to what degree does my life bear the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit or of the works of the flesh? And where we find that we're actually still living in the works of the flesh, that some of those things that are on that list are coming out of us when we get squeezed, then it's our opportunity to go back to God and repent and say, oh God, this was, this was never about me, so would you extend your forgiveness to me once again? And would you help me to grow in producing fruit that's actually real, that actually looks like you, that, that shows your irresistibly good love to a world that's so hurting I don't want to be a Christmas tree church. I want to be one of those rugged fruit trees that just keeps bearing fruit year after year after year. Galatians 5.25, what should we then do? This is how Paul wraps it all up. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. This word, if we live by the Spirit, it's probably better understood in this context as since we live by the Spirit. Paul's not, he's not setting up a hypothetical like, well, if we have this life in the Spirit, well, it could, he's saying, since this is true, this is what we should then do. And then, and he, remember, he's, he's used this language so far, walk with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. Now he says, keep in step with the Spirit. Though the Galatian church and also us today, cannot produce fruit by themselves. Neither are we completely passive in this process. Paul keeps using the metaphors like walk, be led by, keep in step with. Instead of offering a checklist of rules, Paul then instead, instead tells them to follow the indwelling Holy Spirit. So here's the language. If or since you live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, that's 516. Be led by the Spirit, that's 518. Keep in step with the Spirit. It's key to me that walking and being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, involves an intentional and sustained cooperation. A steady walk in the same direction with the confidence of being led and empowered by God's indwelling Spirit. Paul doesn't say, if you then live by the Spirit, sprint in the Spirit once every few weeks. Right? He's talking about a walk, something, because you know what a sprint is, right? You go all out as hard as you can in a way that you couldn't possibly sustain for longer than 50 yards or 100 yards. But then when you get done with that, you're just, you're just done. A walk is something you can just keep doing. You can walk just one step in front of the other. This is the life in the Spirit. It's not a sprint. It's not once a week. It's not once a month. It's a 
one foot in front of the other, day after day after day. That's the language he uses. It's not, it's not exciting. See why I said this is not an exciting message? It, but it's real. And it's vital. It's a steady walk in the same direction with the confidence of being led and empowered by God's indwelling spirit. We won't drift into Christ-likeness. In other words, even though Paul says this is not about self-effort, it's not about what you can produce out of your own flesh, but at the same time, there is something we do to cooperate with God. Walk with the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. We yield ourselves to God's Spirit, forming us and shaping us in our day-to-day lives, often through the various circumstances of that daily life. You know, the things that happen to us throughout our day, oftentimes that's the place where God is forming us. That's the place where we have the opportunity to be led by the Spirit. In the same way that a fruitful tree is cultivated, watered, nurtured, and even pruned. I'll read that again. In the same way that a fruitful tree is cultivated, watered, nurtured, and even pruned, our lives will produce fruit through steady cooperation with God. But this is a microwave. It's not a crockpot. It's not a 100-meter a, a dash. It's more of like an ultramarathon. Here's the challenge. This sort of steady effort that takes time and is not as efficient as simply saying to somebody, do this, or telling ourselves, do this. This type of change and transformation that takes place over time, is, it's swimming against the tide of our culture. Our culture wants everything immediately. Listen to this quote from Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson said, there's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Eugene Peterson, he was, he was commenting on our time. He wrote that in 1980. Okay? Let me read to you the broader context of that little quote. It comes from, uh, this is the prologue of his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He says this, one aspect of our world that I've been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials, and our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. I think 30-page abridgments, he's talking like, you know, Cliff's Notes on a novel or something like that, right? He wrote this in 1980. If, if he was writing this and he said, our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials, I think today, 42 years later, he might say, our, our attention spans have been conditioned by 140-character tweets, three-minute how-to videos, 15-second TikToks, 18-minute TED Talks. Like, everything, we want it to just be really quick and be really effective, right? But it's not. It's not difficult in such a world as ours to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terribly difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ. But there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it's packaged freshly, but once it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. For some, it's a weekly jaunt to church. For others, occasional visits to special services. Some with a bent for religious entertainment and sacred diversion plan their lives around special events like retreats and rallies and conferences. We go to see a new personality or hear a new truth to get a new experience and to somehow expand our otherwise humdrum lives. The religious life is defined as the latest and the newest. We'll try anything until something else comes along. That's from the prologue of a long obedience in the same direction. Eugene went on in his book to to write, 
And in, in this book, he seeks to equip Christians for walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, by pairing two things. Eugene Peterson, pastor, author, he's the one that wrote the, the, the translation of Scripture called The Message. He actually wrote that. The, the, this book was the impetus for him to create The Message. But he tried to pair two things. He said, as a pastor and as an author who was surveying the whole Christian world, if I could give two things to Christians and get you to bring those two things together, it would, it would change and, and create a long obedience in the same direction. Those two things are scripture and prayer. 20 years after he wrote the book, he, this is a 20-year version, he added an epilogue. He said, this, the second conviction, conviction that came with my pastoral work had to do with scripture and prayer. I was neither capable nor competent to form Christ in another person. He's writing this as a, as a pastor and as an author. He said, I was neither capable nor competent to form Christ in another person, to shape a life of discipleship in man, woman, or child. That's supernatural work, and I'm not supernatural. Mine was the more modest work of scripture and prayer, helping people to listen to God speak to them from the scriptures and joining them in answering God as personally and as honestly as we could in lives of prayer. This turned out to be slow work. From time to time, impatient with the slowness, I would try out ways of going about my work that promised quicker results. But after a while, it always seemed to be more like meddling in these people's lives than helping them attend to God. More often than not, I found myself getting in the way of what the Holy Spirit had been doing long before I arrived on the scene. So then I would go back, feeling a bit chastised, to my proper work, scripture and prayer, prayer and scripture. But that and between the two words is misleading. My pastoral work was to fuse them together into a single act, scripture prayer, prayer scripture. It's this fusion of God speaking to us in scripture and are speaking to him through prayer that the Holy Spirit uses to form the life of Christ in us. It's this fusion I was trying to get at in the pages of A Long Obedience. What does the world need right now? It needs a people who are following Jesus because we put our faith in him and we've received all that he has for us now and stretching into eternity that we receive that as an act of grace that was undeserved, that we remind ourselves, like, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those around us. To the degree that we can stay rooted in that God has been merciful to us, we become a merciful people. The world needs a people that are, that are living out of that and that are leaning into the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in a, in a regular rhythm and an observable practice in our lives because it is through that combination of prayer and scripture that God actually forms Christ in us. Let's go back to Paul's instructions. He said, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. How do we do that? I mean, it sounds really good, like walk in the Spirit. That's a phrase we throw around a lot. You know, this is the only place that's in scripture. That walk in the Spirit, this is, this is where it comes from, this passage. What does that look like? Scripture and prayer. There, it's increasingly evident in looking at our lives that we belong to Christ and our independent nature ruled by our appetites and our unredeemed desires. If it, if it becomes clear that we are growing in Christ-likeness, it will be because we're making consistent choices through the observable patterns of our life to cultivate his life in us. Though Scripture and prayer are not the exclusive way to cultivate this life, the testimony of those who've gone before us, the, the, the great cloud of witnesses, are that these two are both vital and essential. Paul promises that if you cultivate this life, you will increasingly not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's a place where he said, if, if flesh and spirit are opposed to one another, and if you, if you are led by the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He, what he, he didn't say you won't ever have them. He said you won't increasingly you won't gratify them. Increasingly you will look different. Increasingly you will be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. This is an aspect of the Spirit that was promised by God before Jesus came. Ezekiel 35, 
This is a promise that this, this comes hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. It's coming a day, God said, when I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And this is using the word flesh differently, but I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart, that is. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A people who are led by the spirit are people who begin to walk intentionally, day by day with Jesus. Our job is to consistently yield ourselves to God in trusting, surrender, and obedience. I'll close with this. I put up a prayer scripture, scripture prayer, final slide here. If I could urge you, even, you know, one of, one of two parting messages before I start a sabbatical. If I could urge you anything, and what am I going to be engaging in during my sabbatical? It's going to be putting down deep roots in prayer and scripture. Church, the world needs a church that it's not led by the works of the flesh, not exhibiting all the divisions, the dissensions, the envy, the, the anger, the idolatry, Church, the world needs a church that's walking in step with God, with his Holy Spirit. This is, this is another manifestation of the Holy Spirit is, is lives that are transformed and bear fruit that looks like him. I always made a list of, if you, so here's the thing. If reading scripture and praying it back to God even like little sound bites, some of the most powerful scriptures to pray back to God are just short promises. If that's not a part of your life, I just offered this as a sample to you of ones that you might begin to engage in. Here's what I found over my Christian life. I, I increasingly find my prayer life is formed and shaped by scripture. And, and it's not just one scripture. They, they become kind of this ball of scripture that all, they, they all get intertwined and it's, it's just the truth of scripture played out. But it's informed and given me language to, to talk to God with and to respond to God in prayer. If, if that's not a part of your life, that you can begin this long obedience in the same direction today. It's not a commitment that you just, you do today and everything's different. It's actually a commitment to say, God, I want to grow in doing this the rest of my life. The rest of my life, I want to place myself before you in a daily way and invite you into my life that day, in those circumstances, in those challenges. If you do that, God will do the heavy lifting. Our job is to cooperate. He does all the heavy lifting. He will change you from the inside out. And one day, you'll be down the road, just taking one step at a time, feeling like you're not making very much progress, and you'll look back and you'll realize how far God has carried you and how different you are than you used to be. That's what the world needs. Not people just tying ornaments onto a dead tree. Would you stand with me? I'm just going to close in prayer. Next week, we're offering baptism. If you've never responded to the gospel as you heard it today, by faith, through grace of the Spirit, and you want to respond, you can do that right now in this moment, and you can come back and, and you can engage in baptism next week, which is going to be a significant time of saying, God, let, let what's symbolic in this moment be true in my life. But additionally, I want to, so, so there's that. Additionally, I want to say, if you recognize a hunger, just even the, the slightest appetite in you saying, I wish that I had a closer prayer life, that, that I had scriptures that, that became part of informing my prayer life, that, that God gave me new scriptures. Maybe you haven't, been, haven't had any new ones for a while to pray into. 
if you want that, let's ask him for that. And then put yourself in places where God can, can show you scripture. I'd encourage you to take a, a picture of that last slide if you didn't do that already. And find a scripture. Just try it. So it's a walk. If that's you this morning, I'm just going to ask you to put your hands out wherever you are. You can put them out like this. You can put them up. But if you would like uh, just God to do a deeper work in you related to this, that you can begin walking out day by day, then um, I just want to bless you with that. God's, God has done this in me. He's still doing it. He's not done. But he's, he's done it in me, and I'm so grateful. Lord Jesus, as a church, may we be represented as a fruit-bearing tree, not as a, a, a pretty tree that's fake or dead, that just looks good from a distance, but at its core is rotten. God, may we be a, a church who's actively living through your spirit, according to your ways and your means. And we invite you to do this in us. And I pray for anyone here who's, whose heart says, I want to do that. I want to I engage in a long obedience in the same direction. I want to walk with God day by day, listening to you in scripture, responding to you in prayer. God, would you give us each scripture that we can pray back to you? Give us scripture that we can commit to memory, that we can pray while we're walking or driving or doing chores or in the shower so that we can invite you into our lives each day to be led by you, to walk with you, to stay in step with you. And God, would you produce true righteousness in us for our joy, for your glory, and for the sake of our world. Amen. Um, I don't think we have any specific words for prayer this morning, but if you need prayer today in any sense, uh, I invite you to come up. Our prayer team and ministry team would love to partner with you in that way. And, um, and we'd love to pray with you. If there's something happened this morning that you want to respond to God in prayer with, um, we can partner with you in that way. Apart from that, remember um, next week is Baptism Sunday. Be here for that. Invite somebody and go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.